Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. It's time to get outside. This is KSL Outdoors, brought to you by Bear River Lodge. Two hours of stories and information on hunting, fishing, and high adventure. Our host is Tim Hughes on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to KSL Outdoors Radio. We'll get to fish bites coming up here in a minute. Russell, uh, we've had some yeah. success in reaching out to the guys Thanks. in the row 4 ALS, and it sounds like they're still on the boat. All right. Abel, are you there? Abel, okay. Hey, guys. Yep. Still here, coming at you live from somewhere in the Pacific. Um, <laughs> well, if you don't know where you are, we don't either. Well, there you go. Someone better find us on the uh, global positioning system. Um, but, no, we're all right. We are um, just about, if I can read our uh, repeater, we're about 65 miles uh, off the California coast. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who's been uh, following along on the Dot Watch or uh, on YB Races, You'll see we took a bit of an unexpected turn on our uh, way to Hawaii. We got uh, past, just about past sort of the, what we've been calling the doldrums, uh, which is this big sort of wind system right off the coast of Monterey uh, that just kind of circles itself. Uh, really tough to get out through it. Uh, that's why um, you won't see many solo rowers or solo vessels getting out past that sort of Monterey area. Um so we did. We sort of got through the thick of it, um, and then started looking at our, you know, our maps and our charts and our timelines, and realizing that, you know, perhaps we bit off a bit more than we can chew on this one, um, and decided, you know, it was, you know, probably best being that we had started with a team of four rowers uh, in a in a essentially a five person vessel, um, and as we got through, decided that. Now that we are down to three rowers, uh, the conditions just weren't really in our favor time-wise, weather-wise. Um, the option was probably best to row back to shore, uh, get us back to the California coast, at least in that case, uh, in the event of a rescue or if we really uh, couldn't get past that point, we'd be able to keep the boat yeah. uh, and get us on the water uh, in a forthcoming race. So, you know, it was a bittersweet couple of days, uh, you know, the team kind of supporting this decision, but all coming from a different place. Uh, you know, some of us thinking, okay, how can we, you know, make the best of this situation, go on to the next thing. Some of us really wanting to finish it out and just, you know, get through this log and the slurry. So, um, but it was a good lesson in teamwork. And I, yeah. you know, I think, you know, if nothing else, the world's best sort of training scenario. Um, and it's ended up being really great. We're now we've gone about, by the time we reach the coast, we will have gone about, 500-ish uh, nautical miles in our big loop around. So, you know, not for nothing, uh, and certainly makes us, uh, you know, more empty for the uh, for the next one. Yeah. So to start the show, I read what you posted or what you had posted on uh, social media and talking about personal issues and that you announced mm. you would terminate your row across the Pacific. There's some valuable lessons here that I want to make sure and touch on, not just for somebody who may find themselves in a rowing situation, but in the outdoors. But take me back for a second here. 
it sounds like you just found yourself working your tails off to the point of exhaustion and not being able to get anywhere. Yeah, and that's really what it is. I mean, if you look, I definitely, you know, and I, you know, I've got this youthful uh, hubris to me, which I don't let up easy. And I was like, listen, you know, I know that we know that we can do this. We can do this. Yes, it's possible. We have the brain power. We have the spirit. We have the willpower. Um, and but what we kept coming back to, and kind of the eye of that storm is, yes, we can. But is it safe and is it worth it? Yeah. What's in this yeah. scenario, right? I mean, what well, yeah, exactly? What's the cost? We were exhausted. I mean, at, the, at that point, we're on a schedule of uh, Dale and I would row for two hours together. Then we'd go in, we'd sleep for two hours, and Tim would be out here rowing the vessel himself, which, I mean, and honestly, I will say to our credit, did a bang-up job, but by the end of the day, uh, especially as the night chill sets in, I mean, it's just, it's too cold to think about anything. Uh, it's too cold to really do any more rowing. Your body is sore and tired, and uh, you're just exhausted from pushing around this yeah. boat, which I will say, beautiful boat, you know, it's, it's carbon fiber, yeah. which in theory is very light. There's a lot of you know, buoyancy, but, oh, my God, it's heavy. Yeah. I mean, for a, for a five-person vessel. Right. So, so, um, so let me just jump in here because I don't want to run out of time. But um, certainly. if you were to take another shot at this, you would take one and maybe two more crew members with you to pull this off. And were the conditions weather-wise different than what they normally have to deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think... If we were to take this vessel again, certainly it needs minimum four people, um, I think, just to make it a viable option. And then, um, otherwise, I, honestly, I think, you know, on all of our training runs, they went so smoothly and so beautiful with four people and with three people. Um, but I think part of that, the case for those is that where we were training and when we were training, we were looking for the best scenario, right? Like, no one wants to train and have everything working against them, and I think going back and doing it again, certainly just attempting to train in more conditions. And uh, I certainly, you know, I'm looking to do this same race uh, next year or in 2025, sort of a redemption arc. Um, you know, and I think this is the best training you can do is do this log, do the slurry, uh, do what's more challenging. So when you get out on the water, you know you're, you know, completely prepared to do that in a safe and, and viable way. I hear you saying, though, that if you did it again, you'd want to take a different boat. Am I misreading that? No, I I think you're certainly not misreading. We, you know, we love our vessel. It's got, you know, a lot of strong points um, and really relatively few weak points. But uh, one thing with the, with the fleet that launched this year, most of them had uh, boats by the same boat builder, Rannick, um, and I think those boats are more suited for the Pacific, which, uh, from what I understand, is a bit, you know, less organized in terms of wave patterns and et cetera than the Atlantic. Um, whereas, you know, this boat performed really, really well in the Atlantic, where the waves kind of roll at the same pattern and you know a bit more what to expect. But I mean, we've been on para anchor almost every night since we got out, which is, you know, quite unusual, or at least never happened uh, to the crew on the Atlantic row. So. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's just it's a lot of learning and and a lot of experience and, um, you know, seeing yeah. what's next and trying. Russ, did, you, something did new. you have a question? Well, I just I just this is a very similar thread to many 
outdoor adventures where the limits are pushed. It it is, yeah. and and I think there's an important lesson here. Yeah, and, very and, important. and Abel, you can speak to this uh, based on the conversations you guys had when you found yourself in this situation. The mental side of it, the physical side of it. No matter what you're doing in the outdoors, you always have to take into account how much of that energy you're going to have to have left stored to get you back safely. And sometimes people don't account for that, and they end up in real trouble. Certainly, certainly. And that was, you know, probably the crux of our decision was, you know, once we got past the mental barrier of, you know, of course, we are exhausted and whatever. Um, but furthermore, you know, practically, what makes the most sense for not only for this row and this, this crew and this endeavor, but, um, you know, for those in the future? You know, do we, you know, is it possible we want to roll out another 30 days, uh, may find ourselves in a similar scenario, and then we can get, you know, rescued out, but the boat has to stay in the water and we lose it. So, um, you know, I, th- I think for that, it's, it's a matter of, um, you know, I think for us going into it again, it would be a matter of not really planning safety plans because we have those in place. Um, but perhaps having more of a plan A, B, and C version, which we loosely had talked about but didn't have something finite. So, you know, I think that's always something good to learn. But, um, you know, that said... I will say for the time we've spent out here, you know, even the bittersweet moments have just been beautiful. I mean, I think it was that morning or the next morning we woke up after the decision was made to come back and this sweet little, uh, I'll have to research what they're called when I get back to shore, but, you know, these little sparrow-like birds that just flit through the waves, one in the night had landed in our boat and, you know, was shivering and sopping wet and we came out on on deck and we're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is crazy, so... You know, we set it up kind of among our mooring lines in a little nest, and it stayed with us for, nice. you know, maybe three or four days coming back. And then at night, we were surrounded by this pod of, there was some debate amongst the crew whether they were killer whales or, you know, some other porpoise. But they were there with us for a, a night shift of about four hours, just on either side. There were about six of them. We could hear them and, uh, you know, see them on one side. They'd come to the other. So... You know, all in all, I, th- I think it's a great experience, and we've had a lot of, you know, good success, not only as a team um, and as solo, you know, adventurers, but uh, with the foundation as well. It's been really, really awesome to see people draw near and express a lot of interest in, in you know, getting involved and going on the next one and, you know, seeing what they could learn from this and how people might get more involved in the future. Yeah. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us today, Uh this is just such, such an awesome adventure for you, and we've all enjoyed following the crew. Um, we'll probably be talking to you next week. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to get that way, set up yeah. because uh, the effort to raise awareness for ALS, which is you know right. the main reason for doing this, goes on, and uh, the effort to continue to raise money uh, for research to be done. Yeah. And so we want to make sure we do our part uh, in a follow-up again just to make sure we get that message out and they can follow you on social media. It does sound like you're in better spirits or in good spirits today, Abel, so give our best to the rest of the crew. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, we're all doing well. I think, you know, our, our most positive silver lining, we have a ton of Skittles and Snickers <laughs> on this boat. So we'll, yeah. we'll bring some over to you guys next time we all see right. you. And, Plenty uh, of chow. We we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you guys all so right. much. Thanks a lot, Abel. Well, that is great. That uh, answered a lot of questions. It too. does, and I was kind of worried, but uh, I'm not so worried after listening to you the could spirit. You hear the, re- the, the relief the in relief. his voice. No kidding. Yeah. 
Uh, that's great stuff. We'll try and uh, arrange to have another conversation. They yeah. should be back on shore by next week, I would think. Uh, well, they better be. <laughs> I'm not going to guess anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to take a break. We'll come back here and get some fish bites. Nostra- I call him Nostradamskis. Nostradamskis will be back <laughs> with us here in a minute, so stay there. <laughs> Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Ooh la la, oh my my. All right, let's do a little fish bites up here today. And first of all, uh, Navi, we learned the hard way last week that these conditions on our uh, rivers and streams is changing daily, isn't it? Yeah. And, and really, you got to have your finger on the pulse. And that's what I'd like to provide with this, you know, with this station we do. But the thing of it is, I lied to everybody, okay? Um, well, last not week, knowingly. I get up to the Weber that it you know the water was low which it had been for six straight days and then literally the day after we record early now we don't record on saturdays it came up and it turns out they had held it back for a week because they had to get the acreage for sale once they met the number the quota then they reopened it so the the people who fish the weaver are asking how's it going to be and and well, my guess is we're done. Uh, you can't really fish the weaver now. It's it, they put it bank to bank. It's back. It's back to muddy again, and I don't see any time period where it could get low enough to fish before it gets too hot to fish. So, unfortunately, the weaver's done. But I do want to talk about where we can fish right now. Well, hang on and, a sec. Let me ask you this. Because the reports are that this water is cold and we're three to four weeks behind in things, might that mean even with the warmer air that the water will be cold enough for the fishing to be better mid-July sometime? Well, yeah, but um, look, you need to know this about fishing a lake, and it's a good question, Tim, because what people fail to realize in regard weather is that the lake has depth, and the optimum temperature is going to be from somewhere in that lake. So it doesn't matter when you're fishing a lake about whether it's warm or cold. It's always cold. Well, I was talking about the streams, though, the the rivers. Oh, the streams are done. You're not going to fish the streams. I'm not even going to talk about streams. Stay away from them. They're not going to be fishable. All right. Yeah, they're they're not going to be fishable. They're still – look, I I looked at the Snowbird Creek, and that baby is gorgeous, clear water, but, oh, my gosh – you can run a raft down it. Look, don't even think about fishing a stream until later in July, okay? Um, the water is really high. This is the way it's always been. We stopped fishing streams um, basically at opening day when there was an opening day, you know, that problem. But really, you've got to start planning for your, your high country trips. That's where the fishing is going to be for the rest of the summer. Uh, the rivers aren't going to be any good until it gets too warm to fish anyway down here. The, but the mid-level level lakes are fishing really great. And when I say mid-level lakes, I mean like Deer Creek and East Canyon and Strawberry, all those lakes. And by the way, the wildflowers are the best I've ever seen them. 
even as a kid, I can't even remember that they were this beautiful. So, look, if you want to talk to maybe the spouse and say, let's get out, well, the countryside has never been greener. It's just gloriously green. And then there are wildflowers like never before. Just for the wildflowers, it's worth getting up there. But all your mid-level lakes, we're talking about all basically all our dams, are all fishing good. Fishing has been really good in the lakes. Like I say, leave the rivers alone. And then start planning your high country trips. The UN is, for example. Um, they're going to be behind, but that's the way it used to be. So what you need to know, when the ice comes off, the same ice-off phenomena happens up there that happened down here. Fishing is going to be good. Just slow your retrieve and darken your flies. You want purple and black, dark olive, and you want to move it really slow. Forget about fishing the surface. If you're a surface fisherman, you still got to wait till probably Pioneer Day before that's going to start to work. But it's going to be good, but for the 4th of July weekend, easily the weekend before in the U.N. is just keep it slow, keep it dark. I was going to reach out to uh, Paul Phillips up at Strawberry because normally by now uh, the kokanee have come on, but my guess is the way everything's being reported with a delay of three weeks or so that uh, that uh, fishing for kokanee probably won't turn on until a couple of weeks into July. Well, actually, the kokanee is doing fine, and they're about 25 feet down. They're, they're going to fish fine. But what you need to know about strawberries, it turned over. The word on the street is it turned over. And it turns over once in the fall, once in the spring, and it, you got 10 days before it's going to fish well again. And that's because the surface temperature and the bottom temperature flopped. With the cold water, it flips over and basically makes no more stratification in temperature as far as depth. So the fish are scattered so much that the fishing is just awful right now. Like I say, the people I know... This week we're saying strawberry fishing wasn't very good. That's all I can say. I didn't do it. All right. Uh, That's going to wrap up our fish bites here. Just want to remind everybody, coming up after the top of the hour, we're going to talk osprey. Speaking of being up fishing... You want to talk about good fishing, uh, the osprey are probably much better fishermen than we are. And watching them while you uh, wait for a bite is pretty entertaining, too. So we'll talk to Tanya about that. They've got a a viewing opportunity coming to Flaming Gorge, I think, on the 8th of July. But we'll confirm that. We're doing a little road tripping, and we're talking mountain biking, believe it or not, as we head to Deer Valley. So stay with us. Hour number two is coming up. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.